Now they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lips. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Ah! I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. Ooh, it's spooky episode. Ooh, ghosts and things. Ooh, ooh, blah. I'm tired. I'm so tired. <laughs> Happy Halloween. Early Halloween, people. Because you guys got to take your dumb kids out tomorrow, so we're giving you this early. You're welcome. It's Barstool Politics. That was needlessly aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> Barstool Politics. I'm your host, Nick McGuire. Joined as always by Dr. Bill Muck from North Central College and Dr. Phil Barker from Keene State College. Hi, guys. Hey, Nick. Hey. Howdy. Hey. Hey. Um, yeah, before we get started, you guys know how this works. Uh, if you guys have comments, questions, uh, beer suggestions, anything um, you want us to talk about or want to know what we're up to, follow us on Twitter uh, at Barstool Paul, Facebook at Barstool Politics. Uh, beers that we try, you can find on the Untapped app that you can download on iOS and Android. The podcast, uh, find us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, uh, most major podcasting platforms, pretty much everybody is on iTunes because iTunes is the coolest, apparently. It's where all the cool kids go. Um, so yeah, review us, uh, share us through there. We always appreciate the support. Um, yeah, we're actually, uh, we've been talking about Predict It a lot over the past uh, month or two uh, since we partnered with them. They're great. Uh, Predict It is a, uh, in case you didn't know and you're new, well, thanks, hi, you're new, it's nice of you to be here. Uh, Predict It is a real money uh, political prediction market, so pretty much a stock market for politics where you can buy and sell shares in future political events. Um, super fun. We're actually going to be talking about it a lot this week uh, in uh, for the run-up to the midterms. Speed round. Speed round. We're going to have a whole speed round devoted to it. Um, but what's really nice, uh, if you're one of our listeners, and you are because you're listening to this right now, and I would be very confused if you weren't one of our listeners and knew how to do this, uh, Barstool Politics listener who use our uh, promotion link um, when opening up a new account re will receive up to a $20 match on their first deposit. So if you open up a uh, $20 account, they will match that $20. So $40 to uh, buy and sell shares in political events and potentially make some money. Not like me, because I just lose money on there. But that's neither here nor there. It's a heck of a deal, Nick. It is. So just use the uh, the promo link, uh, predicted.org slash promo slash barstoolpaul20 uh, and get your free money and check it out. So thanks, Predicted. Yeah. We'll talk about you later. Coming up. Coming up. But before then... Holy shit. The dumpster fire is really raging this week. Oh, God. Oh, it's a bad one. All right, let's dive in. So over the last week, the country has seen multiple acts of political violence that have left the country on edge. Just what we needed after the Kavanaugh hearing, right? Mm. Uh, the list includes killings, uh, killings of two African-Americans in a grocery store outside Louisville, a series of mail bombs targeting a dozen high-profile Democrats, and a mass shooting in a Pittsburgh synagogue. And each uh, the individuals were targeted because of their race, religion, or political affiliation. 
Trump has denounced the attacks and called for national unity. Yet following these condemnations, the president quickly returned to his usual politics, uh, political tactics and attacks. On Monday, the president absolved himself of responsibility by tweeting, Great anger in our country is caused in part by inaccurate and even fraudulent reporting on the fake on the news, the fake news media. And he's important to note that it's the fake news media. Uh, the true enemy of the people must stop the open and obvious hostility and report the news accurately and fairly. That will do much to put out the flame of anger and outrage. And we will then be able to bring all sides together in peace and harmony. And build a wall around the fake news. <laughs> so, despite that awesome tweet, many have asked whether Trump himself bears some responsibility for creating a climate in which extremists pursue political violence. There are so many angles to look at here. Phil, in your day job as a professor, you use science to understand the political world around us. Huh? huh? Yes, science. Is it useful for us to talk about trying to connect one individual's rhetoric to specific acts of violence? Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, so uh, a couple of a couple of things to say about this. It, it is one individual's rhetoric, but it's a very specific individual. It's an individual who holds the office of the presidency of the United States and has televised rallies um, lately, like every night of the week. Um, who you know has the, the so it it would be different if I were saying crazy things versus when the president of the United States says them. So there is a, a responsibility that comes with that. There's I mean we've talked about the bully pulpit and the, the ability of the president to to change attitudes and to you know to push people in different directions um, for for many years in politics. I mean that's a that's a well understood idea. I think one of the there was some pushback from people who were tying Trump's rhetoric to the violence of, of these of, of these various actors in the last week. And I, there's a distinction that's, I think, worth making, which is that Trump didn't make them do this, right? Mm -hmm. He didn't directly incite them. He didn't tell them to build, you know, to mail bombs around the country or to open fire on a synagogue. Um, but he, he didn't make them do that, but he did pour fuel on the fire right you have this you have this atmosphere in which there's all of these all of this tension at play and the president goes out every day and talks about it when you talk about the fake news every day um, and how they're the enemy of the people um, you know un, there are unstable people around the world um, they will do unstable things mm -hmm. but to the extent that you feed that fire or you you kind of fuel that paranoia or that fear that they have already you know in place um i i you know i don't know that you can directly tie trump to it but i do think there is some level of moral and ethical responsibility for what he's doing and and that's the you know in the introduction to the topic you didn't mention you mentioned that these were all sort of racially motivated but the bomber right has a van like the van mm -hmm. was plastered in trump stuff right the um, the guy who attacked the synagogue was very active on social media talking about, you know, these these sort of right wing conspiracy theories about George Soros and about, you know, bringing immigrants. Right. It tied into this mm -hmm. this refugee caravan that bringing essentially immigrants in to kill us and he's not going to stand by anymore. So the the whether it was direct or not, these um, paranoias these conspiracy theories that are out there are being amplified by the president and and that gives it legitimacy in the eyes of a lot of people so yeah i don't i don't want to say that trump caused this but i i do think there's that he you know he if if i were him 
um, I, you know, I think he should lay awake at night worrying about the, you know, feeling some level of, of, uh, you know, shittiness for, for the, the extent to which he contributed to it. Mm-hmm. I think that's just the indigestion from the Big Macs. Perhaps. <laughs> filet-o the filet fish. I'm sorry. <laughs> wrong, wrong one. Um, I think he eats both. Does he eat yeah, both? I think it was like, didn't you, he started with the Big Macs and oh, then went to the filet fish That's was, a real American. It, it was more than one sandwich, yeah. yeah. <laughs> was I'm it a sorry. Diet Coke or a shake? Both. It doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He just it's pours the Diet Coke into the shake. All of the above. Got it. Um, man, it's a walking $1 menu. Um, I, 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 I don't disagree with that. Um, I, I do think there's a moral obligation given the office that he holds to hold yourself to a higher standard you know you should not be regardless of what your personal opinions are and we know there have been plenty of presidents who have had personal opinions that are abhorrent um you know when when they uh they meet the light of day um having said that when i i also kind of agree with the point that it it isn't him doing it but when he says when he says the fake news media, yeah, that's ridiculous. But at the same time, you are the ones that are broadcasting his bullshit 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And realistically, 95% of what he says or does is not news or should not be considered news. It doesn't require political commentary. It doesn't require editorial work. It doesn't require you plastering it on the TV with a panel after every tweet that he does. I do think there is some culpability on the part of 24-hour news media that they they should be held accountable for. It's, I, I, it's, I, there's, when you hear about these people, the ones that kind of take these actions, undertake these actions, and commit horrible crimes, it's not because necessarily, it's, it's, I, I think the, the kind of animus that gets put around these comments or these actions uh, regardless of who you're talking about, it happens to be Trump at the moment, and he's a really good vessel for it. Mm-hmm. It's this constant just feeding of the paranoia and fear, and you know, this is what's happening to our country, and we got to do something, and you know, it's just this constant commentary that something is horribly, horribly wrong, whether it's from the right or the left. And we've seen instances of this happening both on the right and the left. It happens to be this week was a really bad week for the right. Um, I, I, you know, I don't think this is new under Trump. And I've been talking about this at least the past two, about this for at least the past two administrations. And it's, I find it hard to find a, a more direct actor for this type of kind of societal breakdown than the 24 hour news media cycle and social media. And I think the media is in a really tough spot here with Trump. You know, do they, I mean, you're absolutely right. Everything you said, Nick, about the content that comes out of Trump, it's not necessarily newsworthy other than it's coming out of the mouth of the president of the United States. That's what makes it newsworthy. That being said, you know, it's this, this, this dynamic of blaming the media. I find, I'm not, I don't find that as compelling as the, the responsibility that the president bears for what he says, right? And I think you're right that there's partisanship, there's a history of, of incivility on both sides. That, I, don't, I think we could agree to that. What Trump is doing rhetorically is distinct, right? He is, he's different from Democrat and Republican presidents that have come before us. And so, you know, this forces us to have a more difficult conversation. 
what I get frustrated about is when I turn on the news media, what we see is you see Mike Pence saying like, oh, no, 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 Trump doesn't bear any responsibility for this violence. And then you see a Democrat coming on saying, oh, he does bear responsibility as if the only people we can go to are partisans here. The reality is that we have there are lots of experts in this who can talk to us about the relationship between rhetoric and violence. And most of them say there absolutely is a connection. And that we have to be careful to say that Trump is responsible for any one particular act of violence. But to Phil's earlier point, absolutely, you can talk about a climate that has been created in which individuals will be compelled to engage in that violence. You know, one of the things that comes out of that, that literature is that it's not necessarily hate that is driving violence, but fear. Mm-hmm. Right? It's fear of, of what's going on that motivates individuals to engage in political violence. And so when you think about the language, you know, fear and threat that Trump uses, that lends itself or is is very inducing uh, to that kind of activity. Well, fear leads to anger and anger leads to hate Mm -hmm. and hate leads to suffering. (laughs) It's good. That's good. It's Yoda. Yoda. Go, go uh, Phil. (laughs) Well, I mean, the the, we just found the the title to our episode. (laughs) I'm sorry. Go ahead, Phil. I mean, to to use just from this week and the example that we began last week's episode with, which is the caravan, right, which is has been all over the news. It's all that Trump talks about. We're mobilizing troops. Is this one of this isn't one of our speed round topics? Am I not getting ahead of things? It is. It is. Oh, crap. (laughs) Never mind. All right. We'll come back to that. later. (laughs) But you you can talk generally about it. Yeah. I mean, it's an example of the if you look at the way that has been discussed. Trump throws the idea out there and then other people on the right pick it up, Fox News and others. But they're talking about it in a fear-based way, right? Sending the military down there, the diseases that are coming, the criminals, the terrorists, right? So the idea that people's fear would be stoked in this moment in an anti-immigrant kind of way, and that people might think that, you know, that, that, again, we talked a few weeks ago about the the characterization of the other side as evil. Mm -hmm. Um, That gets back to, you know, how does someone get in their head that they need to assassinate the entire leadership of the, you know, the, the top leadership of the Republican Party? They get it in the idea in their head because people talk about the opposition as evil, right? And so if they're evil, you destroy them. You know, you don't you don't negotiate. You don't come to terms with it. If they're evil and you're afraid, this becomes the response, right? So when you, that's where all of this, you know, the, a normal person or I shouldn't say normal. You should. Most people, <laughs> most people, um, you know, wouldn't wouldn't hear what Trump is saying and think I need to go out and kill people, um, but. Some people will, right? Which is why presidents and other leaders have to be really damn careful about the things they say and how they say it. Doesn't it say something about us, though? Like, I, I mean, realistically, as human beings, as human beings yeah. and, and people, realistically, our interaction is not with him. Like, especially in, in this day and age, a lot of it is through social media. And I don't know about you guys, but, I mean, I got off most social media just because it's it's anger-inducing and it's not good mm-hmm. for you. And I look at it now purely for the basis of this podcast, and I occasionally flip through it, and it's just, it's mind-boggling how just vitriolic and just toxic people get, whether most of the time they're speaking to an echo chamber. So not only are they being angry about something, but they're being vindicated in their thought process, which is, it's... It's terrible. It's so, so bad. Because when you meet that other side that you've been talking about and been demonizing and dehumanizing, that that's a powder keg just waiting to go off sure. at that point. And then, I, you know, we, we talked about it already. I, as, I, 
again, he he bears responsibility. Anybody in a position of power bears responsibility to tamp this shit down. But there, the it, it's 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 a similar thing. You have if you want to talk to experts who have been you know studying. Uh, you know, social discourse, political discourse, you know, anger in society, cultural shifts, things like that on occasion to kind of get an understanding of where people could potentially be coming from. I completely understand that. Those are not the people that are, you know, being that are part of these panels that you see on Fox or MSNBC right. Right. or any yes. CNN, any of those things. They just need to fill a cycle. And I, I can remember this like it was yesterday. When there was a story about CNN, how they were um, very quickly um, and blatantly moving away from being a pure news organization to being a news and entertainment organization, which that's all it is at this point. You have sponsors, you have advertisers, you have time slots to fill. This is not about what is best or purveying the kind of distilled truth of what's going on. This is about getting people to watch you for as long as is humanly possible. And what gets people to watch you is fear. Mm -hmm. It's it's disgusting what we do to ourselves and what uh, society has kind of, you know, wrapped itself into. Especially when you have somebody like to go back to the bully pulpit, somebody like Trump who is feeding off of all of that. I mean, Phil, you were talking about the language used, you know, with with the the caravan. And we'll get to that. But he keeps he uses the word invasion of our country. Right. I mean, that's. That's important. And so the, the, the guy who shot up the synagogue, he was not a Trump supporter, but he was on those networks and was responding to that fear. Right. And one of his last posts, he said something, I can't sit by and watch my people get slaughtered. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. so it right. is that dynamic is motivating at least him in that way. And you're mm-hmm. right. I think it's a it's I think Trump bears unique responsibility. But then those others who amplify that message, yeah. either in support or opposition, also give it legs. Mm-hmm. You, you know, talking about the the how social media becomes this echo chamber and what Trump. I mean, Trump is he's a he's a living, walking Facebook post, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's the the way that he talks about stuff is not it's not particularly tied to facts. That's a nice way of saying it. Um, but, you know, it's the, when I think about the sort of the crazy stuff you see on Facebook, it's about fear mongering. It's about, you know, sort of uh, um, a conspiracy theory type stuff that's not tied to fact. Oftentimes it's not accurate. And that if you watch a Trump rally, that's what he's doing. Right. He's he is a he is a personified Facebook post. Um, and something you said, Nick, about the, the TV stuff, and, and back to you as well, Bill, you were saying put experts on that can talk mm-hmm. about this. Um, I saw somebody on Twitter this week that was saying that one of the problems is that um, subject experts, people who actually know about this stuff, aren't necessarily good at TV. Oh, yes. And that people who are good on TV aren't necessarily experts. They're two different skill sets, yeah, right? Yeah, and of so course. you have people who, are, who really understand this stuff. But, you know, it's, it's again, you they're, that's where... When you go to the 24-hour news cycle, TV, you know, new journalists become entertainers to some extent, and um, yeah, it's it's bad. The the other thing I think Nick, you brought up this idea of conspiracy theories. It's different when you have a president who peddles in conspiracy theories, because mm-hmm. the reality is there've always been these groups, these anti-Semitic and racist groups who've been out there, but they've been on the margins. Mm-hmm. And now, when you have a president, whether he agrees or disagrees with a particular issue, but he's willing to support those more 
bizarre and conspiracy thoughts like it, it gives them a voice in a way that they haven't had before mm-hmm. uh, and that's I think that's deeply deeply troubling for the political system when our, our political discourse gets just yanked in an entirely new direction we're not talking about political experts uh, or I'm sorry you know academics weighing in on economic issues or political issues we're talking about what's entertaining and oh, all of that is really really deeply troubling so I don't know how much he you know, I, we've we've talked a lot about how aware he is, uh, whether he's doing this intentionally or not. And this week sort of pushed that issue to a point where I don't know that it matters. So he he, um, you know, after the. I guess it was it was before the, the Pittsburgh shooting, but it was after the bombs were discovered, after George Soros had been targeted. He in one of his press conferences or one of his things, somebody yelled something about Soros and he like pointed and nodded or laughed or whatever. Um, whether he's you know doing that into like Soros is a stand in for Jews. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, that's what people talk about globalists and, and Soros. They're ta- this is, you know, um, and it was back to what we talked about last week with dog whistles. That doesn't sound like that to the average person, but to the people who are in that, you know, on those fringe elements, they hear what they're you know, what they they hear it a certain way. Um, and whether he's doing it intentionally or whether it's just, you know, he's reacting to the crowd, I, I don't think it matters anymore because there's a responsibility when you when you delve into language that has a history of that is has a history of being tied to racism or anti-Semitism or whatever. When you're president of the United States, you have a responsibility to understand that history and to avoid those, those you know even if your intention is not to stoke anti-semitism you, if you have to understand that certain things are associated with a long history of anti-semitism and you are intentional about avoiding those references so yeah. whether he's doing it intentionally or not it seems like it's it's to me it's irrelevant the fact that he's yeah. doing it at all he has a responsibility to understand the history that he's traipsing into i think that's right and i I would go even a step further to say it's not to avoid it it's to condemn it right i mean that's the thing so it's one thing if if he makes those arguments and he's smart enough to not always do so directly but then his language gives those around him whether it's nationalism or whatever the dog whistles are like he needs to come out and not just like this week where he said you know anti-semitism is wrong and we can't do this it's got to be a more consistent condemnation of that behavior in all of its form not just you know not just about the anti-semitic actions but also the media all of that he's got to he's got to make it clear that he does not tolerate that in any way shape or form that goes a long way if he just does these sort of symbolic condemnations it's it's not enough it doesn't those on the other side who want to peddle in violence understand them for what they are and I, so even if he doesn't support those which i think he may um, he, if he doesn't, then he has a, he bears a responsibility to come out. And, and you look at previous presidents, whether Democrat or Republican, whenever this has happened, they've been at the forefront of attacking those views. George W. Bush was that. Ronald Reagan. A lot of those videos have gone around this week to say, you know, what's going on. And I, and I, I struggle with the conservative movement right now. Like, why aren't there more voices directly confronting this? It, it, it this should just yeah. It, this should be easy, yeah. right? It should be easy. So can we let, can we talk a little bit about his response mm-hmm. or the Trump mm-hmm. administration's response to yeah. these events? Because it, it was it, that was what was troubling to to me that the lack of response. Or we we talked last week because this was all sort of developing, and we talked about how you know we should give credit to Trump when he actually does condemn these these acts, and and he did that as you mentioned, but then immediately turned around. So you know he he condemned the 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 bombing stuff, but then the next day. 
was again ranting about you know CNN and the, the news media being the enemy of the people, and so it it very quickly takes you know any any uh, weight that was that was put onto the condemnation away. The the response to the the attack in Pittsburgh was even well was just as weird, if not weirder. I mean, he he held a rally that night and mm-hmm. was. Um, was that the night that he was tweeting about the World Series? And he, he held a rally and claimed that he almost canceled the rally because his hair got wet, having mm-hmm. to stand out in the rain and answer yeah. questions. So not not that he think, thought of canceling the rally because 11, because the, the worst anti-Semitic attack in U.S. history had occurred um, and he was going to Pittsburgh. Not for that reason. It was because his hair was messed up. Um, it was it was just it was weird to me. Um and I kept coming around to this sense that whether or not, you know, the, the, we, we've talked a lot about the racism question the, 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 well, and even in Kelly and Conway and others talked about, tried to frame this as an anti-religious attack as opposed to an anti-Jewish attack, which it mm-hmm. very clearly was when you look at the guy mm-hmm. and, and the stuff that he was saying leading up to it. But I kept coming around to whether or not he's a racist, whether he like is, you know, happy with I don't think he's happy with these things but there just doesn't seem to be any evidence that he cared that that he was like troubled at all it, it was it was weird to me that after this happened in Pittsburgh that he he just he didn't seem to there weren't really statements about it he went on with his life he moved on with stuff there didn't even seem to be any sense that this is a, a bad thing that has happened and it weighs on me and that that worries me that the president doesn't seem to be Again, whether, you know, it's not that he's responsible or whatever, but I would like to think that whoever was president would would have gone home that night and really just struggled with what was happening. Yeah. And it doesn't seem like that's occurring at all. Yeah. I I guess the the thing that I would say about that is you see a lot when uh, more recently when these things happen, they seem to happen more and more frequently now, which is extremely unfortunate that people respond with, you know, your thoughts and prayers don't mean anything at this point, which I completely understand 100%. I mean, there were a lot of these events that happened during Obama's eight years either. Kids shot, cops shot, you know, people of color shot, you know, thousands of people dying in Chicago on a yearly basis. Um, like, what is the responsibility of the president? You can, I, I, I agree, it should weigh on him. But at some point, do we just need that comfort? Or, like, is something needs to be done at this mm-hmm. point? If you're in that position, you need to take action. And, I mean, you, you can, I'll fault every president uh, up until this point that when these things occur, there doesn't seem to be any meaningful action on uh, gun control or, um, you know, mental health and, and the state of mental health facilities in the country, uh, drug addiction. Um, it, it's, we can, uh, we can talk about this all we want. And yeah, he's an asshole for not condemning it more fervently than he has. But we, like, we just, we let these things go so easily now. Not even now. We've always let these things go just because it's not politically expedient to do anything of consequence with them 
So that's and right. I, yeah. I I fault us as a, as a society for that. No, I think that's right. The one thing that the president previous to Trump did was at least try to offer these symbolic statements of we should come together. We should, you know, all all presidents did that. And Trump, Trump doesn't want to be a unifier. Right. And, and which isn't to say that he was supportive of any of the, the violent acts this week, but he doesn't feel a need or a reason for trying to pull the country together. I mean, he'll say things like, what did his tweets say that, you know, we should, uh, we, we should live together in peace and harmony, but he doesn't mean that he doesn't care right. about that. I mean, he wants the, the fight. That's what, that's what he enjoys. And this feels like an inconvenient time until we can go back attacking the other. And he's smart enough to get that. I can't do that right away. And I, instead of, you know, instead of attacking George Soros, I'll attack Maxine Waters for a few days. I'll attack the media. But he'll be back to doing all of this stuff in a couple days. It'll be as if it never happened. Mm -hmm. Do you think, is it just abstract to him? Does he not, like, so I, when I saw the stuff about Pittsburgh, it, it just, I was, I was sad. Like, I just felt like, God, this, like, I just. It, it weighed on me that mm-hmm. this is where we are as a country after the going through the, you know, the, the, the bomb stuff and the, all this other stuff. It just, I just felt shitty about where we were. And I don't, that's where like, I, I don't understand how, if you're president of the United States, you don't also feel shitty about where we are, but his, his initial responses weren't necessarily attacking, but his initial response to the bombing plot was to, to insinuate that it was a false flag operation, right? His, his initial response to the, the Pittsburgh shooting was to say that if only they had had an armed guard at the synagogue, this could have been prevented. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just, they just feel totally tone deaf or heartless. And that, that's where I, I can't quite figure out what's the motivation, what's going on. Is it just that they're abstract things? They don't feel like real people or real events to him. Is it that he, I, I don't, I don't, it, it just it's really troubled me all week. He's, he's not an empathetic guy, right? He doesn't no, that's not no. how he works. It's uh there's no there's there's nothing there beyond the political fight. That's his whole career is doing that. Mm-hmm. Um he's not cuddly, Nick. No, not at all. That <laughs> hair looks kind of cuddly. It needs to be soft like cotton candy yeah, like. Yeah. Like a nice pillow. Yeah. <laughs> no, it, yes. Um I I yeah. I I I I agree with that sentiment. Um you know, I I mean, I have to like you could say the same things about even Obama and his response is the uh, there was there were a few sentences about the actual events themselves. And then it immediately turned into gun control and voting after that, which I get. I mean, that's how you affect change. But if we're talking about this weighing on people, then there should be a time where it just weighs on people Mm -hmm. like I. As much as you, I want to see political change when these things happen. Um, I I don't I don't care what end of the political spectrum you're on. Your representatives don't they don't care about that. Not the current ones do. I I it, I I firmly believe that none of them, in comparison to their ability to maintain power and to govern the way they want to govern, these are. Yeah, empathy is secondary to them. It may be slightly more secondary to some than others. I just don't think they care that much at this point. And partisanship is the first reaction, or maybe in some ways the first reaction, right? You you may have some bit of empathy, but then you think about how does right. this impact me politically, and that's not a good way to to confront a problem in a, in a meaningful way. Mm-hmm. I know we, we I, need to talk about beer, but go ahead, Phil. Well, I I. I uh... 
I guess I'm a little more hopeful than you, Nick, and that I <laughs> That's like dumb. when I look back at. Well, I mean, I think even if you even if you think that they're thinking about political power and achieving their their goals, it still feels like through much of American history, the policies that people pushed were they arose out of some level of empathy, sure. right? So if you're if you're pushing for, you know, civil rights or for, you know, uh, whether that's for African-Americans or, or you know, gay, um, the, the gay community or whatever, or even on the right side, right? Like people, it felt like for a long time in the Reagan years and whatnot, the argument for lower taxes and less government was came from this point of empathy, like not government overbear, overbearing on small businesses and middle class people. And it was this like, you know, trying to do what's best for America. Mm -hmm. And it just, I... It, that doesn't it just feels like that's missing from Trump yeah. right the empathy the, it's just him right it's just about his ego and whether or not people are excited about what he's saying and that it, it's just mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's, no it's disheartening yeah and scary. I, I completely agree with that I, I guess my point is the uh, again from uh, both parts of the spectrum the the acuteness of these events and the expediency that it immediately goes to political action um it it seems more politically motivated than not i completely th i mean this these are the things that should influence political action absolutely mm -hmm. agree i just think that they they jump on that bandwagon as soon as is humanly possible and that does not sit right with me in that way this was a really bad week i mean i felt bad for all of the events like you phil that occurred and I felt even worse when I thought about the inability of our political system to do anything to confront it. Mm -hmm. And the fact that the, the, the president of the United States is probably the least capable actor of moving us in a more productive direction. It's mm -hmm. um, Good news is we're going to talk about Brazil in just a second. Yeah, oh. So, so it's, it could get worse. <laughs> Oh, well, let's talk about beers. <laughs> yeah, please, let's talk about beer. <laughs> what, what are you drinking? Actually, we should note today that Phil Barker, Dr. Phil Barker from Keene State College, spoke with a U.S. senator today. So tell us who you, you spoke with, Phil. Yeah, we had Gene uh, Shaheen, who's the, the senior senator from New Hampshire on campus. And for whatever reason, they asked me to... Uh, moderate the discussion. It was great. We got we got to chat about the U.S. leadership in the world and her concerns about the U.S. stepping back from treaty obligations. And um, yeah, it was great. It was really interesting and getting to see like the behind the scenes stuff that mm -hmm. happens to all these political events just reaffirms my decision to not ever go into <laughs> politics. <laughs> You're still a star, Phil. Oh, thanks. <laughs> so, so what are you what are you drinking? Uh, I'm drinking uh, from Woodstock Inn Brewery, which is here in New Hampshire. Um, they're 4,000 footer IPA. Mm. Um, and I have had this beer in my fridge for a while, and I don't know why I never grabbed it and drank it. It's, um, it's, it's nice. I enjoy it. It's, you know, I, lately I've been having, I've had so many IPAs, they all just sort of start blending together. And yeah. lately when we meet uh, late on a Tuesday or a Wednesday night, I'm just so exhausted that it's, I'm just, my general attitude is mm, beer. Um, and that's kind of how this one, this one goes. It's, it's great. I don't know like that it stands out in any way, but I would gladly drink another if you gave me another one. That's better than some of your reviews. I know. I know. I was grumpy <laughs> for a while about my beers. Nick, what are we drinking? So we are drinking a, uh, Den Kolsch from uh, half acre actually. Um, yeah, I love Half Acre. Oh. And this was at, like like you said before we started taping. I'm not I'm not a huge fan of Kolsch's Same in general. Here. Yeah, but this is this was different. It had a, I felt like it had a little bit more heftiness to yeah. it. Um, it's a little bit more opaque than I guess a standard one. Um, but it's still kind of light and crisp. Yeah. Um, not a lot of 
sweetness to it or anything that kind of puts it over the edge. It's a good, it's just a good drinking beer. It really was. I mean, they, like you said, I mean, Kolsch's generally to me are just sort of like, you know, different lagers. I'm not really crazy about them, but Mm -hmm. this was a really, really good beer. It speaks to half acre. I don't think we've ever had a half acre beer that hasn't been good, whatever the the variety is. No, don't um, look back at the episodes though, because we, yeah. we can't we can <laughs> neither right. confirm nor deny that. But this was a, this was a great beer, and then and then I started my second beer, which is a uh, grapefruit shandy, Nick. So Ooh. yes, one of our <laughs> one of our big man. listeners, Jordan, who who I ran into this weekend, and actually. When I introduced him to Nick, it was like, that's Nick? Mm. <laughs> so, so Phil, Nick was noticed. Uh, he brought me a grapefruit shandy, which is, is one of my all-time favorite You know beers. how many times I've been noticed now? Twice. <laughs> <laughs> Suck it. That's good. <clears throat> All right, speed round? Oh, yeah. Before that, yeah, um, yeah if you guys want to um, find the beers that we try and look at the reviews uh, that we put on, um, put on, that doesn't make any sense. Sense. Um, download the Untapped app on iOS and Android. We are Barstool Politics on there, um, so you can check out everything that we've tried ever, ever, ever. So do that. Good. All right. On Sunday, Brazil became the latest country to drift toward the far right with its election of a, <laughs> of a right-wing populist <laughs> and finger-gun lover, Jair Bolsonaro. This represents the country's most radical politic- political decision since democracy was restored more than 30 years ago. As we've discussed previously, Bolsonaro is a proud defender of Brazil's military dictatorship, supporter of torture, and threatened to destroy, jail, or drive into exile his political opponents. And that's more recently. Uh, he that won was like by last week, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> that was his final run-up to the president presidential campaign. He won by tapping into a deep well of resentment over rising crime and political and economic instability. President Trump called Bolsonaro on Sunday to congratulate him on his victory and promising to work closely together. Uh, Bolsonaro has some similarities to Trump, but is far less tolerant of gays, minorities, uh, women, and is much more open about his authoritarianism. Oh, Phil, let's put this in context. Uh, this is yet another example of democracy electing, or of a democracy electing a populist candidate who threatens the very premise of democracy. Yet Bolsonaro seems to go beyond what anyone was thought possible. Your reactions to this? Uh, yeah, I mean it's it's pretty shocking. Um, I mean, where I where we've been hesitant, I'm hesitant in the past to to throw out this term, but. I, when when someone like Bolsonaro is elected, it's time to dust off the term fascism. I mean, it, it's it he's he we tend to call him populism, but I mean, mm-hmm. all, when you look at like the definitions of fascism, you know, it has to do with authoritarianism, which he's very open about. Like he talks about how he thinks authoritarianism is the solution, and that he, that yes. the Senate should be disbanded, and that you know, um, the the sort of ultra nationalism and opposition to immigrants very much a part of of how he's um, structured things. Um, combined with this sort of, you know, economic populism, he, he checks all the boxes, right? And so I think we're we're really reluctant as, you know, in 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 I don't know if it's journalists or political scientists or just in general. I think because the examples when we think of fascism are so extreme, right? We think of Nazi Germany, so we're reluctant to throw that term around. But um, he's, you know, he's he's a neo-fascist, right? As as much as a as a as a um, populist. Um, it's concerning. I mean, I think the thing that stands out for me for with him, so ma- so much of the so many of the countries where we've seen the shift away from democracy, whether it's you know Erdogan in Turkey or Orban in Hungary or what's going on in Poland or you know all these countries that have have shifted away from democracy towards authoritarianism, 
it's been done in a subtle it's not really subtle, but in this kind of slow way, mm -hmm. right? They're, the people who are doing it aren't explicit about I'm destroying democracy. And that's what he ran on, right? He ran openly and extremely on these on these uh, issues and on his, you know, opposition to democracy and, and, and you know, uh, all sorts of minorities. And so for him to win uh, pretty handily with that approach to be sort of openly fascist in, in his take is... Um, it, it's really disturbing and it's to really have concerning. that be the appealing element right he's he's arguing right. for order and authority that he will right. bring the military back he will stabilize this country which again is economically politically uh the crime is is rampant that was what the people wanted and so the democracy the demos moved in that direction nick this is not not good no it's not <laughs> good but uh, I feel like we fail to talk about that these things happen for a reason. People mm. want these things for a reason, especially if we're talking about Central and South America and Brazil specifically. I remember being in college with you and yeah. discussing Brazil, and Brazil was supposed to be one of the economic powerhouses yeah. of the Western Hemisphere. And, you know, they were a, a model of the global system, and, you know, we're, globalization was working for them. And it seems like the recurring theme with a lot of these places is we got left behind with this kind of global system that this liberal kind of global system that was put in place and people are revolting against it while i i i think it's it's extremely concerning what the result of that has been it's not entirely unexpected uh as much as there was economic opportunity to be had there wasn't as much economic opportunity for countries that didn't have kind of a basis in democracy already or that didn't have a, a sound you know institution institutional structure that they could kind of play off of when you just kind of impose that system and say you're going to make more money because of it that breeds corruption and and this inability to kind of make the system work the way that it's intended so yeah, I, I think it's 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 horrible. Mm -hmm. I'm in no way surprised by it in any way shape or form whether you talk about, South America or Turkey or uh, Western Europe in, in, in lots of ways. Um, I, I'm, I'm not sure that we have a good solution to it at this point, which is probably more concerning to me than anything. I think that's right. I, Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think the thing that I, you're right, Nick, that there, there are um, there, <laughs> there are causal factors at play that are worth looking at. And this is where, you you know, you go back to 1930s Europe. And this is not me saying that this is turning into Nazi Germany or whatever. Right. But if you look at the things that led to the authoritarian fascist governments in, in Europe, it was, you know, economic collapse right. and an inability in Germany for the government to actually effectively get things done. A lot of those things are present in Brazil. So the fact that mm -hmm. they're going down this road is not all that su surprising necessarily to recognize the causal factors at play. I think the thing that that is um, weird to me or the, the thing that stands out again is that it, it's not surprising that economic struggles and corruptions might lead people to drift towards more authoritarian sympathies. Mm -hmm. But most other places when that happens, people do it they're not proud about it, mm -hmm. right? Like they might be sympathetic, but you know, I want a strong leader, but they're not. It, the idea that someone is openly saying, I'm going to do away with democracy, 30,000 people need to die, we should do away with the Senate, and that 
more than half of the country yeah. is like that's our guy mm-hmm. that that's that's really startling well, right it, that, yeah and to build off that, the, the fact that we should—it's important to note that Brazil is a divided society. While he he won what fifty-six percent of the vote, there was a large percentage of the country who were like, "This guy is terrifying. This is terrible." So this it sets up a dynamic where Bolsonaro is suddenly in power, and he's going to have an, an an evil other that he can attack and demonize, which is exactly what has happened historically in fascist regimes. Right? You've got to find an other to attack and to blame for what's going on. Mm-hmm. I mean this. Is setting up to get much much worse and for brazil to drift in a anti-democratic and i think you're right phil to use that that term neo-fascist because i mean i don't think that term works in the united states trump is a populist he has i always say that he's authoritarian curious he wants to learn more about it uh he's got some tendencies but he's he's, he's not a fascist right i think that's that's not the right term to use at this point uh it is in brazil and that that mm-hmm. is bad, and I, I I don't see it getting better anytime soon. Then, nope. yeah. These are all such fun topics. <laughs> Let's talk about the caravan. There Nick. better be like a squirrel on roller skates at the end of this thing, or something like a jack o' lantern. Oh, no promises. Contests. <laughs> Jesus. The title of the next operation is going to be good. All right. So the Defense Department is is going to deploy five thousand two hundred active duty troops to the southern border by the end of this week to help harden security against the vicious wave of Central American migrants moving their way north through Mexico called Operation Faithful Patriot. That's, awesome. a, that's a good name. Mm-hmm. It is just the first piece of a multi-stage approach, which is also expected to include an executive order from Trump to bar entry to Central Americans, right? Just Central Americans, no go, uh, including uh, those, seek, those seeking asylum. There are already over 2,000 troops at the border, and with the addition of the 5,200, we will have more on our border than we currently have in Iraq. That's that's stunning to me. It's a big border. Yeah, that's true. Trump has argued that the caravan poses a grave national security threat to the country. He tweeted on a Monday that, quote, many gang members and some very bad people are mixed into the caravan. Uh, he told those in the caravan to please go back. You will not be admitted into the United States. Mm-hmm. Nick, that's it's just go on. All right. <laughs> All right. Phil, any chance that these migrants aren't really a national security threat, but he's doing this for political interest? A pre-midterm election stunt? Because if so, that ain't right. (laughs) Deploying the U.S. military for his own political interest is deeply, deeply problematic. Go, Phil Barker. (laughs) Um, Is there a chance that they're not actually a national security threat? Yes. Um, Yeah, I mean, this is, we talked a little bit about this, but this is pretty clearly just a uh, uh, you know, it, it's the elections coming up. Um, it's a distraction from issues that are not particularly popular for Republicans. You know, rather than talking about the tax cut or about pre-existing conditions or um, the fact that the stock market has had the worst month it's had since 2009. Um, hey, look, there's a bunch of brown people coming. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the the fact that they're still estimates what six to eight weeks away mm-hmm. um and I, that's the that's the interesting contrast for me you look back at the last week and you had this series of uh, more than a dozen bombing attempts on democratic leadership this you know attack on a synagogue in, in pittsburgh and the fact that our uh, the the head of the department of homeland security is down at the border and we're sending troops to the border for for a caravan that's not going to be here for two months 
it's it's obviously a political st- it's it's a political stunt. It goes back to the the first topic we <laughs> talked about, which is where the rhetoric and the fear mongering and all of that comes into play, and it it I think it does real damage. It it will be likely be effective, Nick. Though, right? I mean, this is immigration sure. and and uh, border security is a bread and butter issue for many conservatives. Yeah. Uh, this will this will likely work, but I, I tend to agree with sure. you, Phil. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, the subtext of this is, at least on paper, the 5,200 troops that are going there should have no direct contact with the refugees or, or migrants, whatever you want to call them. They're there for logistical purposes and to uh, transport Border Patrol personnel to different areas of the border, depending on where people show up, uh, and to create camps in the v- likelihood that these people are either interred or are you know caught while they're trying to cross the border illegally you don't need to send 5200 troops to do that it seems ridiculous um yeah i i mean from a political perspective one week away from the midterms yeah that sends a powerful statement that you're strong on border security you're strong on illegal immigration and that i i don't think it needs to be any deeper than that um does it also send the message to, to circle back to our first topic, which was the idea of this invasion of the country? Does it feed the fear factor, though? That that's my concern, right? That uh, if you're sending, if you've got seven thousand troops on your border because there's an invasion, I mean, it, it's that's not tamping down the rhetoric. No, absolutely yeah. not. I, I, yeah, I, I mean, you know, we we've talked about it this entire episode and several episodes prior to this. It's yeah, this this constant fear-mongering needs needs to stop the opposite part of that is we talked about it with tom last week you know who do we take how many can we take Mm -hmm. what are the criteria for bringing people in this is clearly not just a spontaneous thing that happens these are organized movements that people do on a regular basis so i i i i empathize with what's going on but there's also the again we talked about it last week is rule of law more important to you or is the you know economic plight and potential cultural political plight of people in central and south america more important but, but the the important distinction no. though is that, <laughs> that you, you can be law and order and rule of law and immigrant it turns out we have a whole bunch of people in the american government who deal with that right we have immigration we have border patrol we have people who do this the idea of sending active military units to the border is that is that's a yeah he's sending a message mm-hmm. people but but that, like it's not sending a message it's it's a political stunt right i mean this is where it i it's I, it's an inappropriate i don't know it seems inappropriate i remember when barack obama did a military training operation in texas and the the right freaked out because it was going to be martial law right why are you deploying <laughs> and moving military troops across the country into i i just i don't i, I don't think that not like it's not that you have to send troops to be strong on the border or if you don't send 5000 troops for 2000 people coming your week on the like these people are they're they're going to show up they're going to apply for asylum they can be denied asylum they're not invading they're not coming with weapons they're not going to you know attack people when they get there they're not bringing massive disease which has become the new yes. talking point on the on the right it's i mean the 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 point of sending the military is i think to escalate this sense of a threat right it's to it's to sure. make it a bigger issue than it actually is yeah no i i meant sending a message to his political base not necessarily yeah. to yeah a really expensive message to his political base yes right, right. agreed 
Let's I don't want my tax. Actually, yeah, I don't want my tax dollars going there. <laughs> Let's continue on this theme. So, President Trump has offered a dramatic, if legally dubious, promise to unilaterally end birthright citizenship in the United States. This is a significant ratcheting up of the hardline immigration rhetoric with a week to go before the critical midterm elections. Trump's vow to end the right to citizenship for children of non-citizens born on U.S. soil came in an interview with Axios released on Tuesday. In the interview, Trump stated, quote, We're the only country in the world where a person comes in and has a baby, and the baby is essentially a citizen of the United States. It's ridiculous. It has to end. It's important to point out that this is not true, as 30 other countries, including Canada and Mexico, Mexico, offer birthright citizenship. Many constitutional law scholars have argued the president does not have the authority to make such determinations. Um, They point to the 14th Amendment, which states, quote, all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States, end quote. Phil, what do you make of this other form of nativism? Because this is, this is a little fun little topic here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it fits into, again, the, the, we're, we're a week out from an election. Uh, the, all of this, the, the caravan, we're sending troops. I'm going to revoke birthright citizenship. It all, it all fits into this firing up or, or stoking the base. Um, there's, I mean, there's a lot of... <laughs> uh, there, this is weird because it is constant. I mean, this is in the constitution. Yeah. So the president, it turns out does not have the right to overturn the constitution with an executive order. Fake news. Um, <laughs> <laughs> again, I mean, this is, you know, we talk about uh, the, the, the weirdness of, of partisanship comes into play, right? If, if Barack Obama had tried to over had just writing executive orders in general, pissed people off on the right. Now Trump is wanting to change the constitution with a, with a um, executive order and people are cool with it. Now, I think what's interesting, I, as I read more about this, my first reaction is, well, that's that's stupid, right? He can't, he just can't do it. Like, he's he's going to, he'll issue this, he'll say that he's going to issue an executive order because it fires people up. There will never be any follow-up. And even if there were, nothing could come of it. But as I read some constitutional law scholars today, um, it's clear that there is possibly some room for interpretation on this. This has been settled law um, the interpretation of the 14th Amendment was settled in 1898, so it goes way back. For but good the reason, right? And this was in response to the Dred Scott decision, right? I mean, that's yeah. which was arguing that that black saves slaves were property and not citizenship. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, so this there's there's real history here. Well, Phil, what, I was reading a lot today. What's the legal argument for why he can do this? Because I couldn't find this. So the, my um, my understanding. So if you go back to that that phrase, the or the sentence in the Fourteenth Amendment, which is a long amendment, but all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States. So that's been interpreted that if you're born here, you're a citizen. But the the argument is it could be interpreted as all persons born or naturalized in the United States. The important part is the and subject to the jurisdiction thereof. So what what does that mean? So the argument is, if you are in the United States um, illegally, right, and, and you are therefore not subject to the jurisdiction of the United States, you are not a citizen. And if you have a child in that case, you that child is not guaranteed citizenship. So the argument would be anybody who's here legally, anyone who is a citizen or you know a resident or whatever and is subject to the jurisdiction of the united states if they have kids here their kids are naturalized citizens Hmm. but if you're not here legally then it so 
that's not a comment. Like the, the vast majority of scholars, you know, think that that's nonsense. It's been settled since 1898. But this idea that it could be open to interpretation could mean that it could go back to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court, the inter current interpretation was settled by the Supreme Court in 1898, but it could be changed by the Supreme Court. Um, I, it, it still seems really unlikely, and it would bring up this question. It would be a bit of a constitutional crisis. It would be interesting to see if the Supreme Court would even dare consider uh, that that mm -hmm. sort of argument. But in the meantime, if he issues Phil's just shaking his, I'm sorry, Nick is shaking his head in anger. Not, no, not with you. No, no, not with Phil, yeah. but just. Yeah. The, the end point, though, is that even if it gets shot down eventually by the Supreme Court, if he issues an executive order, that's direction for American, for government employees. So in the meantime, if he actually issued an executive order, it would be pretty chaotic. It would be really, uh, it would be, I mean, the, there would be questions about government employees and do they have to follow the executive order or do they assume that it's unconstitutional and they can't do that? I think it's not likely to happen, but I don't think it's as black and white as, hmm. as, as people, you know, it, it is something that could be an issue. I, I it's absurd to me that it might yes. be. Yeah. Nick, I, I, that's that. Yeah. That's the thing. This whole thing is absurd. There should, it's to the point where presidents need to be stripped of their ability to, create executive orders in my opinion and and more if that's not the case then you need to be stripped of the ability to create executive orders that have some sort of bearance on the standing constitution there's no way that you should be able not necessarily to unilaterally change it but to give direction that could potentially open the door to change it that is fucking ridiculous mm -hmm. because you are not the body responsible for that we are the body responsible for that our elected representatives in the legislative branch are the ones that are responsible. I, 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 it just blows my mind. This is this is even a discussion right now. Jeff Flake, who always is good in these moments, tweeted out, President Trump can't do this, and he shouldn't. Well, like, what do you mean? You, he, he, he can't do it, he can't <laughs> right. do it. This shouldn't, isn't necessary. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with both of you. This is, I, I hope this is just a another political stunt and that's it. It's, it's still disturbing. I, I, I mean, it's it's just another, you know, it's a political gag. It's it's the midterms. I, I'm not so sure, though, because the, if you've seen the video of this Axios interview, they ask him about that. And it's almost as if he, I mean, he even says this, like, you know about this? You know, they told me I couldn't do it, but I can do it. And, and, and again, I don't know when he's when he's being authentic or not, but I got the sense watching this that he really genuinely thought he could. And maybe somebody will have a conversation with him where they clear up to say, like, n no. This was a this is a constitutional question, but I, I'm not so certain that he doesn't think he could do that. Yeah, I, don't know. I, I guess we'll see. <laughs> Which I, there's a we got to move on, but there's one there's another interesting element to this. I mean the 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 conservative movement who tend to be originalists in terms of interpreting the Constitution. This this feels like an activist interpretation, right. uh, you know, of of the presidency, not even of the court. That's what's disheartening for yeah. me is that th th that attempt by executive order to ch alter the interpretation I, over a century-long interpretation yeah. of the uh, of the Constitution should be the sort of thing that conservatives right should be up in arms about and and just the mention of this should have led to a slew of statements from Republican leadership saying this this can't be done you shouldn't do it right that they yeah. they should be saying this to call him off to push him away from it and the idea that they're not 
Well, right? I, it's just it, Paul yeah. Ryan. Paul Ryan did come out today. And That's he said, true. Good and for Paul him. Ryan and said, like, you, you, you can't do this. Obviously, you can't do this. And yeah. so good. I mean, Paul Ryan is he's on his way out. And right. I'm guessing there's going to be a bunch of middle fingers from Paul Ryan to Trump on his way out. But no, good for Paul Ryan for doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it shouldn't be it shouldn't just be people who are on their way out. It shouldn't just be the Jeff Flakes and the Paul Ryan yes. speaking up. And Bob Corker is, well, yeah. They're very busy. They'll deal with it after next week. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, after the midterms. Yes. All right, let's jump overseas. Uh, Chancellor Angela Merkel of Germany on Monday announced that uh, she will soon give up her leadership of the Conservative Party once her term... I know. I, Merck's is gone. Oh, Once her term as Chancellor is over in 2021, although she may not even make it that far. Miss Merkel made her announcement after two disastrous results in regional elections that saw her party and its allies slump to near record lows. Merkel has led the Christian Democratic Union for 18 years and the country for 13 Mrs. Merkel, 64, said her decision aimed to give her party an opportunity to, quote, get ready for the time after me. It's it's so thoughtful. I mean, she's just good. She also said she would not seek any other political office. As the United States has withdrawn from the world, Merkel has become the chief defender of the liberal international order. Phil, what's going to happen to the liberal international (laughs) order after Merckx is gone? I'm I'm worried. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I mean, I'm a little worried, too. This is, uh, you know, the, the... as the U.S. has sort of stepped back from its global leadership position, Germany has kind of stepped into that into that role. Um, and I'm concerned about the the degradation of this you know, post-war international order. <clears throat> Having said all of that, um, it worries me to see Merkel go. But if the international the sort of liberal post-war world order is dependent on Merkel staying in office, then it's we've got a much bigger problem. Right. Mm-hmm. There's another problem of of tying, I, you know, politics to a single person. Right. It should be about institutions and about, pa- about parties and about ideas. And, um, you know, hopefully there will be. Uh, um, someone else who will step forward right whether that's another german leader or whether they're you know who knows in the in three years who knows what will happen the you know the what could happen in in britain or france or canada or any you know in the u.s who knows what will happen but um yeah it feels like the the last kind of flag bearer is is going home but um uh yeah so that that makes me nervous but uh um we can't we can't rely on her to hold it all up. So. Especially, you know, Emmanuel Macron was ex- in France. With, there were a lot of people who were excited about him as taking the mantle, but he's he's struggling Oof, in France right yeah, now. I mean, he just good. you know he, when he was elected, there was a there was a wave of support, and that's dwindled. Uh, Nick, are you worried about Merkel? No, no. I'm okay. glad she's going to be gone personally. <laughs> like this is I, I, this is similar to the conversation that we had earlier about Brazil and you know kind of globalism in general. I. I <clears throat> I think she represents that kind of original, um, you know, uh, uh, globalism kind of perspective where everyone is going to benefit from the system and things are going to be different and it's it's going to benefit everyone. And that has not panned out. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've seen the effects of that throughout Europe at this point. And you can say that that's a, a result of you know the, the individual countries still having their own sovereignty and own lo- and own laws and um financial structures that were not you know w- well supported for lack of a better term but at the same time we saw it with Brexit and the rise of kind of the the revolutionary right in several countries in Europe France and Germany specifically um 
uh, Greece to some extent as well, that people feel like they are getting left behind in this system or that they're being supplanted by other people that are coming into Western Europe that are not part of their culture and are having an easier time getting assistance than they would, whether that's perceived or not is up to you. Um, it's, I think there needs to be a change to a more pragmatic view of the global system. I don't think it's wrong by any means, but I think there needs to be an understanding that it is not the vision that mm -hmm. the original creators and purveyors had. Um, and she is one of those people that is kind of holding that back. That's a good point because we still haven't seen a wave of candidates to defend that order in the way we've seen more candidates be successful attacking that liberal international order than we've seen a new wave defending it. Mm -hmm. And she really isn't the new wave. I mean, she is really a throwback to kind of the Cold War era. I mean, right. she always reminds me of George H.W. Bush in terms of her stability and cautiousness, and that was valuable. But I would, I guess I'm hopeful that there might be a new wave, maybe coming from Germany or other places, that, that defend the, the idea of a global free market, free trade, and to do so in a way that's uh, to, to address the concerns that you've raised, that globalism and globalization is beneficial for everybody. There's got to be a voice to make that case. And Hopefully, I know there's lots of speculation who's going to replace her, and that's unclear as of yet, but that either from Germany or elsewhere, we see that voice. Mm -hmm. and, and fair or not, I, I, I think that she is associated with so much of the last 10 years of European politics. Mm -hmm. So both the, the, the refugee crisis, but even more than that, austerity and all of mm -hmm. the, the sort of post-financial um, crisis restructuring that went on that... Um, you know, I, in some ways, if you could have her policies, the exact if she could put on a mask and mm -hmm. be a different person but have the same policies, I feel like there might be uh, more openness to it or less backlash to it just because she's associated with it. And and I wonder if a, a, a fresh face might allow some movement forward on some of these issues that have been kind of you know got that have Europe sort of stuck in a lot of. You saying she a needs a issues. facelift? That's just that's, that's it's not nice exactly what I was arguing. Realistically, if she face. smiled, it probably would look like a mask. But. <laughs> She's Nick. All right, hey, sorry. She's Our final beef. topic. We've gotten to predict it here. So the predicted midterm preview. <clears throat> so the midterms are next Tuesday, and we're going to have uh, Dr. Suzanne Chad on us on Wednesday to break it all down. And there are a lot of really interesting races to watch. Uh, and as you know, we're partnering with Predict It. Uh, so let's go around the room and share the race or market that each of you are most interested in. So Phil, why don't you start us off? What, what, what are you watching? Uh, so I you, I you told me one, but you're, I, I think knowing what you're going to talk about, I'm going to mention two real sure. quick that I yeah. think are worth watching. One's the Georgia governor's race that we've talked about on here, um, where you have, again, an African-American woman who's running um, against the current secretary of state of, of Georgia, mm -hmm. who's... Who 30, you know, if it, I, I think the Democrat has better than a 30% chance. Mm -hmm. so that, that seems kind of attractive to me. The other one that I'm watching just for out of interest is the Nevada Senate race. Um, because if the Democrats stand any chance of taking the, the Senate, there's a lot of key races that they have to win. It's a real long shot. But Nevada is one of the ones that they have to win. And right now, Predict It has um, Dean Heller at about whether he's going to get reelected. He's the Republican right at 50 50 so it's it is a, a true toss-up and the the polls have it very similar as well and so that that just seems like a race that is prime for a lot of movement when you're when you're at 50 50 polling's about 50 50 i think on election night those early returns mm -hmm. are going to send that number all over the place and so i don't know 
which way I'm I would buy on that. But uh, it'll be really interesting to watch, as, you know, in the days up to, but certainly on election day, how that how that moves around. And, and for our listeners, the, the day of an election, as returns start coming in, the predicted markets are so much fun, right? Because you can <laughs> you can see as the numbers and the returns come in, those markets go all over the place. In some yeah. ways, they respond to early data. Uh, that's that's the best time to be watching all of this, Nick. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, yeah, I was looking at the uh, the Arizona Senate race actually. <clears throat> which is really interesting. Um, there were reports today of um, Kirsten Cinema uh, holding a six-point lead over Cinema um, uh, is a Democrat in the race, um, holding a six-point lead over Republican Martha McSally, uh, who you would think would be the front runner in that right. race, and it's extraordinarily close. Mm-hmm. Looking at Predicted, though, what I found really interesting right now, it's it the the polls tend to suggest that Cinema is yeah closing the lead if not leading at this point over the 90 day span though the the trends are completely inverted it started with cinema well above McSally and that has completely changed the other way over the past 90 days so I'm not sure if this is kind of a just a blip on the radar and it it tends to be based on the outside polls that you see within or close to the margin of error but just uh, the money is it's so mm. compelling like it makes it makes me want to think that McSally is she's 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 gonna be it mm-hmm. um I I you know it's I don't know it will be really interesting to see what Arizona does and what kind of the future of that state oh, looks time. like going forward but um personally for me I I kind of think that McSally is going to do it I trust the money more than I trust the polls at this point boys well and the other funny thing is or a fun thing is over the course of the night you can you don't have to wait till the end of the election you can sell you you can buy and sell your shares over the course of the evening mm-hmm. right that that's what makes it great yeah so. that is fun the I, fact that the fact yeah. that a that that a Demo- the fact that that race is even in yes. in grasp of Democrats is is pretty startling and yeah. pretty telling it is uh, I wouldn't have expected that yeah. yeah, John McCain is rolling in his gray room. Yeah. I, I, so I'm watching Texas. And uh, so uh, Ted Cruz, the Zodiac killer, um, <laughs> running against Beto. And so the, what's interesting to me is that the predicted market really has Ted Cruz. It's like, you know, 80, 80 cents for this. Yeah. This strikes me as that's out of whack with the polls. I think it's likely that Ted Cruz wins. Yeah. But I don't think it's that secure. I mean, I have some Beto stock. And. As I look at this, there's part of me that thinks I should buy more just for the for that evening. Things are going to tighten, and at that point, yep. the markets will be really exciting, and then I might be able to sell for a profit, Nick. Um, <laughs> but the fact to, to build off Nick's Nick's point about Arizona, I mean, the fact that a a Democrat is still in that race, uh, and the polls have him closer. Phil, you've been watching this better than I have, but I mean, it, you know, it's roughly ten it's... points in the polls, which is you know the predicted market is different than that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I agree. I, I think that's a lot like the Georgia race and that the Republican is likely to win. But I, yeah, it's like I looked before we came on. Beto, Beto is it's like 19 cents uh, yeah. for a share of Beto. And that, that I don't that's know. That's a good buy. That, I feel like <laughs> he's got a, a better than buy. one in five chance of pulling it off. And, and Maybe we, that's wrong. I don't know. No, I mean, we are on the cusp of a potentially huge wave and that's the thing though and so no we're not yeah <laughs> we don't know but previous waves a whole bunch of races that nobody thought could flip flip 
I mean, the same thing when you go back to the 2016 presidential election. Nobody thought Trump could win. It happens. And so a week from now, when we're breaking this down, we could be talking about a whole bunch of wacky things, including Beto winning in Texas. You know, so, I, so I'm not sure, but I think you're right to say that, you know, at 19 cents, Beto's a good buy just on, the, on a long shot. I think that's what makes this election. Midterm elections are always fun to watch because yeah. I'm a political nerd. But um, this year, I think what makes them really interesting is that there's so much we don't know. This, yes. It just looks different in terms of who's going to turn out, uh, you know, how invigorated are Republicans, how like sort of burned out are Republicans. It, Democrats, all signs are that they're fired up. Yeah. But whether or not they're fired up enough to actually go vote or not is another <laughs> right. question. And so, yeah, I mean, it's I it could really be I I. I, I'm not exactly sure what's going to happen. No, I, it, no. It's not out of question that it's a Democratic landslide. It's not out of the question that the Democrats get hammered in some way. So it's going to be it, it'll be fun to watch. It's also, great. go vote. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, vote. Mm -hmm. I, I will say in some of the special elections, as we've been working with Predictit, watching the returns come in with Predictit changes everything. And you said, Phil, you said midterm elections are exciting. I, I don't always feel that way. <laughs> But with Predicted and this kind of dynamic, it made like every half an hour that goes by with new returns coming in, watching, it's like watching a stock, but in real time. That is, it has changed everything. It's like March Madness for me. <laughs> what a nerd. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Oh, well, this was a fun boy. one, boys. This was fun. Yeah. I was going to do something festive, but the internet sucks here. Yeah. It's unfortunate. Um, I hope this plays. We might not even have outro That's music. That's okay. At this we don't point. need it, Nick. Think you Monster could... Mash, Bill. Yeah. <laughs> God, why? You, you read my mind, Phil. Uh, I don't think we're going to get it, though. We're going to get the regular stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, like we said at the beginning, if you guys like what we're doing uh, or hate what we're doing and want to tell us about it uh, fervently and kind of spread that fear mongering, please do so on Twitter at uh, Barstool Paul, Facebook at Barstool Politics. Uh, beers that we try you can find on uh, Untapped uh, that you can download on iOS and Android. We are Barstool Politics on there. Uh, the podcast, SoundCloud, um, Stitcher, Google Play Music, pretty much. All you guys are on iTunes, so uh, review us, share us through there. Um, we've been talking about Predict It the entire episode, in case you missed it. Um, yeah, uh, uh, Predict It is a uh, real money political prediction market where you can buy and sell shares in future political events. Uh, our listeners, uh, when you open a new account, uh, will receive up to a $20 match on your first deposit. Um, so if you open up a $20 account, they will match that $20. Um, just use the promo link, uh, predictit.org slash promo slash barstoolpaul20, uh, and check that out. Definitely check it out before the midterms. Um, and yeah, make a, make a fun game out of it during the midterms, because we will certainly be doing that. And we'll break it all down next Wednesday. Oh, yeah. It's going to be a fun one next Wednesday. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's going to be so bad. Will we be under martial law yet next week? <laughs> well, that might be a two-week window. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> we got some time. Yes. Anything else, guys? No. See you next week. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>